Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Welcome back to another episode of the Superhumanized podcast. I am so glad you are here. It is truly a privilege and a pleasure to be able to connect and share with you on this platform. As the title of the show implies, how to become our highest superhuman self is at the core of the conversations I have with my guests. Often, however, I feel very human indeed, minus the super, especially when life and its demands get overwhelming. Do you also often feel strung out and overwhelmed by an endless list of things to do? In our culture, doing is very highly valued. Do this, do that, do more in less time, and then use the time you win to do even more. We operate as human doings and not human beings, and it is exhausting. How can we switch this around and become centered in being human beings again? Today's guest has some pretty profound and applicable answers to that. Joe Sanok is the author of Thursday is the New Friday, How to Work Fewer Hours, Make More Money, and Spend Time Doing What You Want. In his book, he examines how the four-day work week boosts creativity and productivity. Joe has been featured on Forbes, Good Magazine, and the Smart Passive Income podcast. He's also the host of the popular The Practice of the Practice podcast, which is recognized as one of the top 50 podcasts worldwide with over 100,000 downloads each month. Best-selling authors, experts, scholars, business leaders, and innovators are featured and interviewed in the 550-plus podcasts Joe has done over the last six years. In our conversation, we will talk about the difference between work and productivity and why personal discovery is so important. In Joe's words, this life is ours. We believe that we are made for slowing down and doing creative and impactful work, that weekends are not enough, and that our best work comes after we slow down. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. First things I want to do, because I think that'll give our audience a really good glimpse into who you are, what you're about, is I want to read an excerpt of your manifesto. This life is ours. We believe that we're made for slowing down and doing creative and impactful work, that weekends are not enough, and that our best work comes after we slow down. We believe that the mechanical system created by the industrialists was a step forward for the time, but is no longer what is best for humans or the world. Our human potential is being limited by mindless and useless work instead of the impactful work that sits quietly inside us. We believe that Thursday is the new Friday. Now, Joe, you stand for the concept of the 
four-day work week. What I would like to talk about first is where does the concept of the five-day work week actually come from? Yeah. So in 1926, Henry Ford implemented the 40-hour week, the five-day work week at Ford Industries with the idea that if he gave his people a weekend, they would have a reason to buy cars from his own company. So his employees then were getting the weekend. They wanted to get out of Detroit and go see Michigan. So they'd buy a car. They didn't. They wanted to get home faster because in the 40 or so years before that, the typical work week for people was 14 to 18 hours a day, six to seven days a week. So it was a gigantic step forward for human evolution, for business evolution to give people a weekend. But we see that industrialist mindset continued where a lot of people were thought of as machines, even the way that a lot of businesses are still run. It's key performance indicators. It's very clear job roles. It's I can plug this person in. If they don't work well, then we can just find somebody else to replace. Almost like we're replacing a part on a machine. But we know that's just no longer true in the way that we approach business anymore. Yeah, and I find it really interesting what you said about this mechanistic view, because we also are still living in and impacted by this mechanistic worldview, which I think originated in the 1700s, if I'm correct. And where, yeah, where we see as we don't view the world as an organism that is living and breathing in ourselves as part of this organism. And the impacts that this mechanistic worldview has, it really has takes influence into all aspects of our lives, daily lives, our way of viewing life, everything. How does this, what currently is the status quo, this 40-hour work week actually impact our health and well-being? Yeah, there's a number of studies that I cite in the book where we talk about lower sleep, higher anxiety, all of these things that were really looked at pre-pandemic. Deep down, we know that this wasn't working anyway. Even if you look at the trends in the 1990s and early 2000s, the rise of casual Friday, it's the day that we do team building activities, you wear jeans to work or casual Fridays. Fridays already were on the way out. And I would say most people, if I surveyed your audience or even the average listener, if I said, do you feel like you want to have some sense of purpose in the work that you do? If you're spending all these hours, do you want to have purpose? That's not something that a hundred years ago, people would have even thought of. They just wanted to survive. They wanted to have food on their table. And this outdated model is still how many people view things pre-pandemic. But during the pandemic, we see this great resignation or what we might call great recalibration of people saying, I've known this deep down for a while, that this job wasn't a fit, that the boss I had wasn't a fit, that the way it matched up with my lifestyle wasn't a fit. So we see people leaving their jobs, trying new things throughout the pandemic. And then even where we're at now, people are saying, what do I really want out of life? Do I want to have my highest calling be sitting for 40 hours in a chair? Or is there something that's maybe bigger for me that I'm being called into? Mm, it's really interesting how something as terrifying and negative as the pandemic can also have really interesting positive impacts on us. The sudden realization that life is indeed finite and that there is always something that can pop up that can shake you to the core. I think it's helped a lot of us to change our priorities and something that has been so prevalent pre-pandemic and it's still is our cultures steeped in this sense of staying busy is a good thing. When you are busy, you're a good and productive person. I think a lot of that also may come from certain 
religious values that have been instilled in us. So even if we don't practice religion, we're certainly influenced by it. I'm thinking especially of, you know, I'm German-born European, but especially the Lutheran flavor, so to call it, no disrespect here, of the Christian belief has been deeply steeped in the sense of work and working hard and idle hands are an evil thing and so forth. So why is this notion that when you're busy, you're a good and productive person, not necessarily true? Yeah. If we think about the function of teaching your children in the 17, 1800s to work hard, if you had 10 kids and you knew half of them wouldn't survive and there was no social service system for when you're older, like you want kids that are going to farm or going to create something so that not only do you have money coming in, but that you're protected. When you're older and you no longer can work, that you have people that will protect you. It served a very clear function. The problem is that our brains and our society no longer need that level of hard work in order to do the best things. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. Our very best ideas, the research shows, comes when we slow down, when we take time away. You even think about you know, when do we have our best ideas? Is it when we're stressed out or maxed out? Or is it when we're taking a shower or walking our dog? Or maybe you're on a long drive and you're stuck in traffic, but you turn off any music or podcasts or radio and you just let your brain kind of wander. That's when we have our best ideas. And those are the actual things that make a difference in our businesses and our society and in actually taking steps forward. So the very thing that served people 200 plus years ago, working hard and having this Protestant work ethic are actually the things that now are detrimental to good ideas. And I think something that's really key is to recognize that things are ever-changing and what was good once and even necessary for survival is what can hinder us most today and actually even impact our survival on the individual level. People working themselves to the bone, of course, is very unhealthy. And now I think we have to differentiate. There is, of course... Uh, situations you just have to work you got to pay for the roof over your head you got to pay for food you're literally in survival mode which is very different indeed from somebody just being in the i think you call it the hamster wheel right just doing something because that's what they learned how to do even though they may have other options at that given time for them something that's also really important you also you mentioned it during the pandemic, a lot of people's perception of life and work shifted. And many of us have put a really big focus on personal discovery. In your thoughts, why is this so important at this time? One thing that I learned throughout the research with the book was the overvalue of work and the undervalue of fun. And that actually, when you look at, there's a number of different studies that point to it, that people in their jobs want to be able to learn, to level up, to find passion, in addition to make more money, in addition to having time off, but really feeling that we are our best version of being humans in all aspects of life is something that we all want deep down. And the pandemic gave us an opportunity to try making sourdough bread for the first time, or even just to have time sitting around watching Tiger King or whatever those things were that we did in 2020 to say, whoa, okay, there's more to me than, than I really thought. So for example, my daughter and I, during the pandemic, we weren't going to Michael's or any place to buy canvases. And I said, well, why don't we just start some, doing some acrylic painting? 
And we would take boxes because everyone was ordering things from Amazon and we'd cut these boxes into little canvases. We'd tape the edges so it had a cool frame. And then we'd say, what do we want to paint together? And so we'd both pick something and we'd paint it and then see what it looked like to the other person. So just to have that time with my daughter to be able to say, I want to slow down. Hopefully, when as things opened up, I say, there were things in that time when we were in lockdown, when we were stepping back, that were really special. So for example, we went on the road with a camper for most of the pandemic in late 2020 until 2021, lived in the national parks and really discovered some really unique things. To me, my daughters now have a sense of learning and geography and the construction of the United States, political things that went on that they wouldn't have had if they were in the classroom. So even one day we went to Mount Rushmore, but in that same day, we went to Crazy Horse. So just to discuss how Mount Rushmore was built on a sacred hill that was taken away from Native Americans. And to have that discussion or to be going along the border in Arizona and New Mexico and be able to see Mexico and to say, why would someone leave their homeland to come to the United States and follow a coyote person to bring them in? And like, how bad would things have to be for you as a little seven-year-old to pick up and sneak across the border? Like probably pretty bad. And so to just have those firsthand conversations to me adds a lens of depth to my parenting, to my kids, to just being able to live a life of meaning that I wouldn't have had I not had that. And so I think when we're at our best, we find these moments and then we pull those moments forward and say, how do I make time, you know, when life is back to quote normal to make sure that I am exposing my kids to things that challenge their worldview, to expose them to different cultures, to be able to think differently and level up. That to me is the best of humanity. And we can't do that if we're maxed out and burned out from our 40 plus hour a week jobs. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And these memories are absolutely priceless that you were able to create with and for your daughters. Something I really found interesting and loved in your book, Thursdays, the New Friday, is the difference that you make and explain between work and productivity in a nutshell. Can you tell us about this? Because a lot of people still Yeah, Yeah. So I would say there's two models. There's the industrialist model and there's this new emerging model. The old model said that the highest calling was to be in the chair for 40 hours. We're not going to have clear outcomes or productivity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we have a very clear prescriptive script. Here's how we do everything. And sometimes that doesn't apply, well, then you're in the wrong job. Whereas a more organic model is one where we're going to value testing. We're going to value evaluating. We're going to say, let's try this for a quarter. Let's take every Wednesday off and just see how that works. And then we're going to report out every week what's going well, what needs some improvements, and then say, okay, it didn't work. Let's adjust. What did we learn from this? And so this new model is looking at like, why do we really have these roles? So sure, we have a front desk coordinator. We have an administrative assistant. Why do we have that person in that role? Is that their highest calling? Do they want to grow into something else? And so realizing people can level up within a company and to be productive in different ways. So even within my company, there's three questions that I ask everyone at least annually, if not more often, and it's become a part of our culture. And the first is, what are the things that you're doing in your job right now that you love, that you absolutely want to keep doing? It brings you life. You just feel amazing when you're doing those things. Second, what are the things in your role that you hate, that you want to hand off to someone, that we need to hire someone? So to give people the ability to say, a year ago, I wanted to do your podcast show notes. Now I don't want to do that anymore. Great. Let's find someone else to do that and level you up differently rather than just be stuck in a job they hate. 
And then the third question is, where do you feel that you're drawn to grow? What additional trainings do you want to do? What are you interested in? And so to allow some of my staff to go from just say being a visual designer to wanting to learn, how do you do video design? How do you do you know, promotion on YouTube? How do you do SEO on YouTube and putting them through those classes so they can level up into the types of roles that they want? So then when you have a staff that's doing the type of work they love to do, and they know that they can shed the things they don't want to do, they stick with you longer, they do better quality work, and it's tapping into the part of their brain that makes them feel most alive. It's uh, nurturing too. For you as an employer, you're actually nurturing these relationships. You're nurturing the people and helping them to level up. I like that you use these words and uh, live their biggest, highest potential. Something else that really has been discussed a lot in the recent past is the value and the importance of taking breaks. How does this actually affect our productivity? There's two different factors that I think are important. So the first is when we look at weekends or breaks, oftentimes it's in response or reaction to what just happened. I had a busy week. Now I'm going to just veg out for the weekend. Rather than saying these breaks, these weekends, they need to be in preparation. So we want to move from reaction to preparation to say, I'm going to take the best possible weekend, even if it's just two days, it may be one day, but I'm going to make sure that weekend, that break is going to be the best for preparation for the coming week or the coming days. So that's one thing that we need to shift. Secondly, there was a University of Illinois study that looked at micro breaks. And what they were specifically looking at was vigilance decrement. So vigilance, meaning how well we pay attention to something, decrement, meaning breaking down over time. And so the old way of thinking was we have a certain amount of energy in a day. And once we use up that energy, we have to eat, we have to sleep, we have to rest. There's not really a way to optimize our energy. And so they wanted to challenge this point of view. And what they did is they brought in college students. They gave them random four-digit numbers. So say it was 4312. So here's your randomly assigned four-digit number. We're going to sit you down at a computer. And when you know your number comes up, you're going to press a button. So a bunch of other four-digit numbers are coming up. And then you see your number, you push the button. Super boring task for about an hour. What they found was that there was vigilance decrement. At the end, they didn't pay as attention as well as they had at the beginning of the study. Okay, we knew that. You get bored. You're pushing the button. So what they did in the second version of the study is at the one-third mark, they gave these students a one-minute break. They said something like, you're on the wrong computer. We just got to switch you over. Just hang out in the lobby. The lobby didn't have TVs. They didn't have access to their cell phones. It literally was just a one-minute break with nothing to do. They then brought them back for the next third of the study, and then they gave them a second one-minute break. So they had two one-minute breaks over this hour period of time, and they found that they completely eliminated vigilance decrement. What does this mean? This means that sometimes we say, oh, I need a three-day weekend to feel like I bounce back. Sure, you probably do. Like, I'm sure we all could use a little less work. But also the way we work is just as important, that we can use our brain to biohack in to do things more effectively when we are working. Because a lot of people will hear me talk about slow down. And I think that's what most people need in North America and Europe. But the other side of it is when we want to sprint, when we want to kill it, we want to do it right in a way that the brain actually activates. And there's all this emerging neuroscience that helps us see that even as little as one minute break every 20 minutes can help totally eliminate vigilance decrement. And so to be able to then talk about and actually implement all of these new biohacks while I was writing the book about the book, it was really magnificent to be able to learn these things and say, well, I'm going to test this out while I'm writing this book about those very things. <laughs> Excellent. And 
So taking breaks, obviously, is super valuable and important. I notice it myself, too. I usually I like to set a, a little a timer for 45 minutes, and then I allow myself to take a 10 to 15 minute break and also stay away from cell phones. Maybe I just do jumping jacks, maybe make a tea and breathe and sit outside with the bees. I have a bee hive out here. So just connect with nature. And then once I start again, I'm actually full of energy and I'll look at things in a new way. I can get in such a rut working. I get more done at the end of the day if I look back when I keep to with that strategy, with that hack. So taking breaks obviously is very valuable, very good. How about shorter work weeks? How do those impact creativity? Yeah. So what we want to look at is, again, testing for specific environments. And so for one industry, a shorter work week may be, maybe the goal. It may be what works. It may be what the evidence shows. For other industries, it may be a six-hour day instead of an eight or nine-hour day. For other industries, it may be doing four 10-hour days if they need to have that 40 hours. So think of ambulance drivers. We can't just say, sorry, Fridays, we don't have ambulance drivers. And and so we're going to have to adjust and change. So every industry is going to have ebbs and flows. I think about accountants who tax season is always going to be busy for them. From January until late April, it's going to usually be crazy. How do they most optimize their work during that time, knowing that it's going to be crazy? How do they automate things? So oftentimes we want to have that one prescription for everyone, but the biggest thing is to start testing. We know from Parkinson's law that work expands to the time given. And so if I were to say to you, you know what, you have to eliminate a day a week of work and you're like, okay, but I can't. Okay. What if you had to, what if you had to do a month of four days instead of five, will you do your best four days of work, the best tasks, or will you do the worst? Of course, you're naturally going to do the best work for yourself. So say you have 20 tasks or so for your podcast and all the different things that you do in five days, you cut out 20% of the time, you're going to do the best 12 to 16 things every single week, which then allows you to say, why am I dropping the ball on these things? So usually email is one of the first things people drop the ball on because there's not a direct ROI on their email. It's not like every time you check your email, you get paid $10 per email. If you did, I imagine you check your email more. And so to even just say, why am I the one checking all of these hundreds of emails? For example, I have an assistant. My director of details, Jess, goes through my email. I came back from a one-week vacation and I only had 20 emails that I could respond to. All the rest she had responded to. We get over 200 emails a day. Uh And so to be able to leave for a week and now my work isn't harder because I took that week off, it's about the same. And so knowing, okay, it's going to take about half an hour for me to go through these 20 emails for the most part, but to have specific things that she texts me over. Okay. If a client emails me, that is one of my higher paying clients, she texts me right away. If a podcast sponsor emails, she texts me right away. If my kid's mom, my ex-wife, if she sends an email, she texts me right away. So knowing that every email is not created equal. So when we think about shortening our work week, what it does to the brain is it allows us to put our time and energy into the very best things. And then we naturally start dropping the ball in other areas that we either need to eliminate or we need to outsource. And outsourcing is hugely important. Do you actually have some tips for the audience here? Most likely not everybody would be able to hire an in-person, on-the-ground personal assistant, but are there some tools or services that you can recommend. Somebody just needs to get rid of some of their workload and uh, things that are also easy enough to outsource where it's not too sensitive as far as privacy is concerned and such. Yeah. I would say start with the things that make you the most frustrated. So 
for me, that was email. I hated looking at email and seeing 200 plus emails. We put all this time into developing an email list and opt-ins and I want people to follow me, but then I don't want to respond to them. That's terrible. That's terrible for them that it takes weeks for me to respond to an email. And so I would start with that. I would start with really small roles. If you had someone check your email for three hours a week, what would that look like? What would be your privacy concerns? Are there certain people that if they email you, you just say to your assistant, please never open that email. Do you need to unsubscribe from some things and set up a separate email that's more for just personal things? So figuring out who is flowing in and out, I would also recommend don't look for that unicorn person that can do everything. Because for one, they aren't going to be able to do everything well. And I would rather have five team members that each work three hours a week on the exact things they're good at than have someone that's adequate in all those areas. Lastly, I would check in with them very regularly at the beginning and have them be the ones that create the systems. For example, I had the basic outcomes that I gave to my director of details. I want to be able to jump into my email. I want to see starred things that are the ones that only I can reply to. I want you to text me when the most important things come up. And if you have questions, let me know. So that's the big picture that I want. Now I have them create the system for it. So then, for example, if there is an email that came through that I thought that my director of details could actually have responded to, I'll BCC her on that. And she knows when she gets a BCC, that means save this in the library of responses. You should have responded to this. That's not bad. It's not that she failed. It's just we're learning and we're getting smarter over time. And then when we meet weekly, then feedback becomes a natural part of the meeting. Instead of saying, let's sit down, we need to have your performance review. And that's when I drop all these things that I hate about what she does. Nobody wants to hear all that. And so to just have ongoing feedback where she can say to me, Joe, you need to be checking your email more often. I'm going to put it in your calendar on Tuesdays and Thursdays because you're getting behind. Okay. That's not necessarily a slam on me. That's just the reality that Joe needs to amp it up a notch. But if there's things that she misses. So for example, even today, there's something in my calendar and it just said a person's name, no phone number, pre-consulting call. And I need to have someone's phone number if I'm going to call that person. So screenshot it, texted her. Hey, is there a phone number here? Oh, I'm sorry. I missed it. I was waiting for that person to reply back, but I forgot to put it in. Okay. Feedback's a part of what we do. Now, if there's something that constantly she drops the ball on, that's a different conversation. But to be able to say, let's improve over time, that's where you can hand off more and more over time as well. Excellent advice, Joan, especially using feedback to gradually improve things versus dumping everything on somebody (laughs) once a week or once a month. Yeah, Something that's always fascinated me, especially since I started reading different scripture, philosophy, and ways of living and looking at life. In our culture, in our Western culture, doing is very highly valued. Do this, do that, do more and less time, and then use the time that you gained To do even more, we operate as human doings and not human beings. How can we actually internally start to switch this around? Because, of course, this is deep programming. How can we switch this around and become centered and embrace the idea of being human beings again? I think if we really step back and say, where does that narrative come from? One aspect of that is that we believe that we have control over our environment and that we have probably believe that we have a lot more control than we actually do. And so I actually, over the last year and a half, through my uncoupling, through becoming an unexpected single dad, I'm raising my kids primarily on my own. A lot of things hit the fan in my personal life. I've always been someone that thought that I could think, evaluate, sign up for the right program to get out of 
any situation that causes me pain. But that's just not true. We just can't do that. And so if we just start with it, most things in our life, we don't have control over. Michael Singer, he has written The Untethered Soul and a few other books. I love how he speaks about how weather and traffic are two great opportunities for us to realize how little we have in control. So he talks about, <laughs> imagine you're planning to go camping with a bunch of friends for the weekend and it's going to like, you guys have all like taken Monday off and got sitters for the kids and all these people that you love are ready to go out into the wilderness together. And then it starts pouring rain and people get mad. I can't believe this. And how, how narcissistic is it that the rain cares about our camping trips? Like we literally have zero control over the rain and yet we would get so worked up over that or to be driving and to say, I believe everyone around me should drive like me. I would have used my turn signal. I would have stopped slower. I would, whatever. So Michael Singer talks about how it's such a great chance to detach from our expectations of what should happen and to say, okay, we all have sitters for the weekend. We're going to go camping. What are our options here? We can go sit in the rain. We can go have a big, crazy adventure in the rain. We could all go get a hotel room. We could all just go back to our families. Those are the things we have control over, but the rain, the traffic and all those other things that we don't have control over. If we start with, we don't have control, then that means we also don't have to put in the same effort. When we say, let's do, we can say that where we're seated right now, where we are right now is unfolding. And a lot of it has, I have zero influence over. Just being present with the moment and truly present and not merely reacting. Traffic, <laughs> I think traffic, of course, that strikes a chord with many of us, certainly with me, and I'm still very much practicing. On your website, you have something that I really love. You have a form where people can, they can submit their experiments about how to make Thursday the new Friday. What are some of the most intriguing submissions you've seen? And what are some of your own best tips to make this happen? Yeah, one that I really like is that I actually talk about in the book is Kalamazoo Valley Community College. So in Southwest Michigan, there's this small community college. And what I like about this is oftentimes when we think of four-day work weeks, we think of startups and entrepreneurs and people with immense flexibility. But what I like about KVCC is that it's a traditional community college, two-year prep college, whatever words people would use for it. Uh, and this guy, Ted Forrester, he was an HVAC instructor there. So he's teaching heating and cooling in big institutions. He noticed that in the summer, there were very few students that were on campus on Fridays. And so he went up to the roof every Friday on a summer, took a picture from the roof, and then in the fall did the same thing and compared how few cars were even in the parking lot. And then he presented that to the board and actually made an argument for testing out the four-day work week in the summertime. And so they did that. This was several years ago. And we heard about this story about a year and a half ago. And Ted then made the case for this four-day work week. And they saved millions of dollars just in air conditioning costs by turning off the AC on Thursday night instead of on Friday. Uh, they also found that staff morale and retention went up. And the unexpected one was that student completion, which is a huge thing in universities, completing degrees went up as well because students then could come and get advising at times when they wanted. So oftentimes advising was open earlier in the day or later in the day. Um, they had this flexible working schedule for those four days. So then students were being served differently and they've continued this for years. And to me, that just represents how oftentimes we just say this can't be done. But this guy, Ted Forrester, this blue collar professor of HVAC technologies goes to the board and says, can we just try this? And they experimented and it worked. 
And they've saved millions and millions of dollars just in AC costs over that time. Uh, We hear, yeah, go ahead. Oh no, please go ahead. Uh No, we hear stories every day of just this over this weekend, as we recorded this, the UK is going to be testing a four day work week to see the Iceland study that was a multi-year study of over 3,000 people in different industries to see places like Shopify start to test out the four-day work week. I think it really is, we're getting close to that tipping point. It's still the early adopters. But once we start seeing some of the evidence from a lot of these experiments, we can then say, okay, let's pick and choose what works. Let's do another experiment with our own companies. And the more companies that do that, they're going to be attracting top talent. So right now is a great time to try it because you know, it right now it's very hard for employers to find good quality employees. But once this becomes the norm, then it's going to be like, great, you do the four-day work week, so does everybody else. Like That's not going to be a selling point. Whereas right now it is. So the sooner that companies can get on board to at least experiment with it, they're going to be able to attract a lot of that top talent away from other positions. It's mm, great. You actually, I love the story you shared about Ted Forrester, how creative, how smart, how perceptive. And with that story, and also what you mentioned just now, you actually answer another question I had, which was how employers can experiment with a four-day work week and what is in it for them. In one case, they were actually able to save millions of dollars. What you just mentioned, you'll be able right now, as it's still a new thing to attract top-tier talent. What else would an employer in the long term gain from experimenting and maybe implementing a four-day work week? Yeah. So I'll walk you through the exact framework that I teach. There's also a Harvard Business a Harvard Business Review article that we can link to that I wrote about how companies can implement this. So the first thing is you want this to be small teams when you're doing an experiment. So teams of anywhere from six to eight. More than that, there's just too many dynamics going on. You also want to look at these teams being similar in job roles. You don't want someone from marketing, someone from sales, someone from HR. They just have too many different things going on. So you want a small group of people that have very similar job roles to do an experiment. So you want your experiments to last at least one quarter, three months, because we want to have a few of those rotations to go through. You may have one month that's great with sales and it's just great with sales. It had nothing to do with the four-day work week. And so if you then all of a sudden say, look, we did the four-day work week and our sales were through the roof, we want to be able to see, is it really the four-day work week that's making that, that expansion or is it something else? So minimum of a quarter. So the way that you're going to do it is first with that team, you want to make sure that the supervisors are involved. You always want to have the sign off because if their higher ups back them into a corner, you want them to be able to go to bat for you. You want them to be able to say, here's our exact plan. I signed off on all of this. They're going to look innovative if this is done well. And so that's going to help them as a supervisor also. So one of the first conversations you're going to have is what do we want to have be our culture? So with that small group of six, is it that we're never working Fridays? Is it that we're going to be done at four every day and we're going to come in a little bit later? What is it going to be? We're going to write that down. We're going to all agree to that. And we're going to see that as an experiment. So there may be times that you're in the middle of the study and you've said nobody checks emails after four o'clock on Wednesdays. And then Jim from accounting sends an email at 9 p.m. and half the team responds. We then need to talk about what happened there. Maybe Jim gets a really important email every Wednesday night from Europe and he needs to make sure that goes out to the team. We then are adjusting our culture as we go to say, 
But on Wednesdays at 9.15, we need to all check our email. That's okay. That just means that we're trying to adapt this to have the clearest program for everybody. Okay, so the culture, that's one conversation. And the second one is around your key performance indicators. So what are you already judged on? If you're a sales team, it's probably sales. If customer service, it might be satisfaction. It might be work orders. Whatever you're already judged on. We're not recreating the wheel. We're just saying, how is our team already judged? And so whatever that is, we want to have one, maybe two measures that indicate why we exist within these roles. So then you're going to start the study. And then every Monday or whatever the first day of the week is for your team, you're going to have a quick 15-minute stand-up meeting just talking about, first, how did we do with our culture? So with that Jim from accounting example, okay, we all got an email on Wednesday night. Half of us responded. That's not what we agreed to. Do we need to change our agreement or do we maybe need to rein it in and just not respond if Jim emails all of us. Also, we want to talk about the heart side of it. What did you guys get to do this week with that extra time? Oh, I took a yoga class for the first time. I got to go to my son's baseball game for the first time in forever. So we have some of that heart. We want to be documenting this as we're going. Secondly, how do we do on the KPI? Is our, our sales up? Are our leads up? Whatever it is that we're evaluating, is it up? What did we do differently? Oh, I was so much more focused. I didn't take a break. I knew that I could just like hustle. What were the things that help us be up? Or if we're down, what do we need to do this week to address it? So we're not letting more than a week go by if we see some sort of negative pattern happen. So we document that throughout the month. Each month, we then want to have a longer meeting. So these other meetings are quick 15-minute check-ins. We want to have maybe a half-hour, 40-minute meeting saying, okay, let's summarize the last month. Let's have that in more of a report. Let's talk about the qualitative, so all that heart stuff and the quantitative, all the number stuff. And then we're going to give that to our supervisor and say, this is month one. Here's our report. We're going to do this then in month two and month three. And at the end of month three, we want to do a 60 to 90 minute wrap up meeting where we really look at if we were to go through all of these numbers, if we were to look through all of the qualitative things, would we recommend this to be expanded into departments that are similar to us? If so, what would we keep? What would we throw out? What are lessons learned? So that then now your supervisor has a larger, say, 10 page report that says, here's what we discovered from doing this type of implementation. This wouldn't work. We found that Wednesdays is a terrible day to take off, or we found that Mondays is a terrible day to take off. We adjusted midstream. So then we've learned over time, showed our process and showed the outcome. That makes a lot of sense, Joe. And it provides employers with a lot of data. And also it's quantifiable, which is really helpful. You won't feel like you're throwing darts into the dark. Now, this is the employer side. How about when you're an employee? How do you actually approach an employer and suggest or ask for a more flexible work schedule? Yeah, I think there's a few different things you can do. It could, there's actually, I have a second Harvard Business Review article that is how to talk to your supervisor about the four day work week. But I would even start with just how do you have boundaries with your supervisor? Do you feel like at the end of the day, that you're on call until you get back to work the next day? Do you feel like you can turn off your phone and go to a movie with someone that's special, whether that's your kids or your spouse? Do you feel like if you're on vacation that you can genuinely be on vacation? So I would start with, are there basic boundaries being implemented already? And if not, that's one conversation. If so, that's a different one. Secondly, I would, whether it's an article or my book or other things in the news, have that conversation with your supervisor. This is going to give you a lot of data. Are you working for someone that's an industrialist that says, no, you have to be here 40 hours a week. You have to be in the office. I don't care if the pandemic's taking off. You have to be here. That's going to give you different data than if someone says, I'm willing to try this for a quarter. Let's try it. So do you even have an innovative boss or not? 
that's going to give you some different decisions you have to make. If you realize in this process that you have a boss that doesn't feel safe, doesn't feel innovative, just wants you to be in the office, you can choose to stay in that job. But in doing so, realize that there's probably not the same opportunity for your own personal growth as if you looked at switching jobs. Now, that's easier said than done. I know everybody has their own life situation. But this is going to reveal to you, are you working for an industrialist or are you working for someone that has more of an innovative approach? Then if they say, I'm up for it, sketch out what that would look like, use the template we just talked about to walk through what that experiment would look like, and then start talking to coworkers about who would want to be on that team of six to eight people with your supervisor's approval. You don't want to just be going rogue without your supervisor's approval. That could lead to different outcomes than you probably prefer. (laughs) Indeed. Joe, there's a concept that's been widely discussed in the last years and that's been experimented with around the globe from Canada to Finland to Germany to Spain to Kenya. What are your thoughts on basic income? Yeah, I think that what's difficult about a lot of what we're talking about is it's usually aimed at an upper middle class, more affluent types of jobs. The people that get the short end of the stick in this discussion are hourly people, are people that, you know, restaurant workers people that maybe aren't getting benefits. And so this opens up the discussion for a much larger conversation of why should all of us get a four-day work week, but if they work four days, they automatically make less money. It doesn't matter if they're more creative, they're a sous chef at a restaurant and they're just going to make less money. And so I think looking at some of those universal basic incomes, I'm not an economist, I'm not a politician, so I don't know enough of the nuance of how to make that happen. But if we're talking about having fewer hours, in regards to work time, that does mean we have an extra day of recreation. So I think we will see other industries would grow even more. If you look at bars and restaurants, say everyone had, or most people had Fridays off, Thursday night becomes the new Friday night. So there's going to be some shifting that happens. And having that basic income discussion really is something that has to be part of it. I'm just not an expert on the kind of economics of it to be able to speak to exactly how that would play out. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's uh actually an idea that's been around since the 16th century, but it's really been experiencing an incredible resurgence just in the recent past. And I think there's been some fascinating discoveries that were made. Alaska, for example, is a state in the US. I think since 1982, the state gives every citizen a check basically just for being, and in that way, they have wiped out extreme poverty. And they've discovered that it actually has not affected employment overall. But so people still seek work. But what a positive side effect was that apparently had an effect on fertility. So it encouraged families to have more kids. Another interesting state in the US is North Carolina. And this is on tribal land. Cherokee land where there is a certain amount of revenue that's been given to every tribal member on casino tribal land. And so it can be up to $6,000 a year, I believe. And it's been found that it actually did not make people work, but that it improved all over education, mental health, and also decreased addiction numbers and crime. So I find that fascinating. I also am not an economist. I don't know what the implications at large are if you would want to look at something like that for a big country and over long periods of time. It's just an interesting idea. Speaking about ideas, what are your thoughts on the future of work with 
things like robotics and AI advancing at an unprecedented speed, we may very soon see some changes that will transform society as we know it. If I look at the next 50 to 100 years, if we look at even just the environment, we're seeing massive environmental changes. We're seeing, I was just out in Colorado and seeing the amount of discussion over water rights and things like that. Living in Michigan, we the Great Lakes have 25% of the world's fresh water. And so there's going to be a lot of discussion locally where I live around freshwater rights. Who owns that freshwater? So I think that we're going to see a lot of shifts based on the environment or lack of resources. So I think that's something to keep in mind. When I think about the future of work, we have so many challenges ahead of us, whether it be the environment or political things, or you know, there's just future pandemics that I think about 2019 and is that the best that we can do? These overworked people that are anxious and underslept, are those, is that environment going to create the most creative minds to address these challenges? Or does working less so that we can actually have our brains be optimized for the most creative work that we can do? Is that what we want? And so my hope for the future of work is that we see that working less helps us actually understand and come up with solutions quicker than being overworked. And so I hope that 100 years from now, in the same way that Henry Ford's 40-hour work week is outdated, I hope that Joe's Thursday is the new Friday is outdated in 100 years. I hope that we continue to evaluate and systematize and make things so that we can become our best possible humans. Wonderful, Joe. I could not agree more. And this is why it is so paramount that right now we look at reframing the way we view work and also possibly change our work week. I would love to know from you, this is something I ask every guest because um, it interests me with regard to leveling up and optimizing. Are there any practices that have accompanied you through your life or maybe something new you picked up recently that have just helped you function better mentally, physically, or spiritually? Yeah, I would say that especially during my uncoupling, I pulled out all the stops in regards to figuring out how to just feel grounded every single day. It was such a tough time of seeing my daughter's mom leave and to be the solo parent. So meditation has become a really strong one. I love Sam Harris's waking up app and a lot of the teachings within there. I would say that Ram Das is a great teacher that I've enjoyed listening to, but really like deep down, it's been more saying, what are the most important relationships in my life and making sure I make time for that. So even if I have a new vacation rental, that's about half hour away. I had to go work on it yesterday and it just was nice to get my hands dirty and make sure I could have outsourced all of that, but it just was nice to be doing the work myself. And I was driving back and I just called a friend I hadn't talked to in a while and had a great conversation for the half hour back and to go on walks with guys that live in my neighborhood. To me, sometimes we make it so advanced. Like I got to try this supplement and then I got to try this workout thing. And that's great. Those are great things. But deep down, we want to be seen. We want to feel connected. We want to have our bodies feel good. So just eating food that makes us feel good and paying attention to what makes us feel junky while not overdoing it. You know, there's times that deep fried onion rings sound delicious to me. And the next day I say to myself, that's not the best decision, but it was delicious. So I think just being gentle with ourselves and saying, what really does give me life? For me, that's usually people, it's good food, it's downtime with my loved ones, and somehow moving my body in the environment outside of my home. Wonderful, Joe. Yeah, it's about being connected to ourselves and also being connected with others. And something that can be very conducive to that is what your mission is about. And that's 
about really rediscovering oneself and not getting burnt out on work that actually is not truly productive. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your practices and your tips with us today, Joe. This was a really great conversation. I'm most grateful. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 